Last week, we talked a little bit about aiming our lives to be like Jesus. All right, that sounds like a pretty generic church sermon to hear, right? You come to church and, and the pastor tells you, live like Jesus. <laughs> okay, well, that, that's, that's good. And we talked about how he was to be our spiritual target. Now, that may seem like a great idea because many of you came back this week. And so if you heard last week and you're like, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea. That's nice and all. You might have heard that message and felt like, okay, well, that sounds good. I want to have Jesus as my target, but come on, he's Jesus. <laughs> How am I supposed to hit a, a goal that's that lofty, that high? How am I supposed to be like the son of God, the almighty? How am I supposed to live my life with all of my issues and, and struggles and difficulties and my brokenness and my confusion and my insecurities and my weakness? And we can go on and on and on, right? How am I supposed to live like that? That's Jesus. That's not, that's not me. Nobody can be like him. So what happens sometimes, though, is we hear a message like that, and instead of just saying, all right, but that's where I'm still going to set my target, and I'm going to move in that direction, sometimes what we do is we say, well, instead of me shaping my life to be like his, what if instead I just kind of shape God to fit my life? Because that seems a lot more attainable. I know the parts of my life where I need God to be, so I'll just let him into these parts and ask him to work on these parts, and I'll just get a little bit of God pouring into my life the part that I need to give me the security and the places I didn't have it. And for the rest, I'll take care of it. All right? Now, I, I was reading um, this week, actually, I was reading a, a book by a, a pastor who's... He's, dead and gone now, but he was a pastor and an author named Eugene Peterson, and he said this, and it struck me in regards to what we've been listening to and, and thinking about these past couple weeks. He says this, he said, most people suppose that the goals they have for themselves and the goals that God has for them are the same. That's how a lot of people look at it. They think of themselves pretty highly. Most of the time we think pretty highly of ourselves. And we usually give ourselves a lot of grace and space on things. Your car alarm's going off. Just wait, wake up, wake up, over there. Put the pancake down, go outside. Most of the time we give ourselves the space to do what we need, but we say, you know what? I'm a pretty good person, so if I know what I want in my life, God probably wants the same thing for me. If God's a good God, and I know what I want, then he knows what I want, and he wants to give me that thing, and so he's got to be, if he's good, I'm good, we're all good, our goals have to be the same. And we expect God really to come along and bless our wish list, all right? But like a parent who wants to bless their child, he has insight that might cause him to deviate from our goal. I know that's not fun to hear, but it's sometimes the way it is. All right, think about this. Let's say you're a parent and you've got a, a, a small kid that you take to the zoo. You go to the zoo, you walk up to the elephant enclosure and here is this adorable little baby elephant. And your kid sees that baby elephant and they're like, dad, look at the baby elephant. This is incredible. And you watch the baby elephant and it's so cute and it's walking around, wandering around the enclosure and everything else. It's like, baby elephants are awesome. And your kid turns to you and says, 
I want a baby elephant. Now as a parent, you're like, oh, that's, that's sweet. You can't have a baby elephant, all right? Not if you live with a yard the size of mine, at least. <laughs> this isn't gonna work. I understand you want a baby elephant. I understand that you feel like that would just bless your little soul. But I also know that that baby elephant's not gonna be a baby forever. And I know what it takes. I actually don't even know what it takes to try to raise a, an elephant. But what I do know is that's not really the greatest goal for you to have. But dad, I want this baby elephant. I need this baby elephant. I would love this baby elephant. But a lot of times, those goals, those dreams, don't fit in with the things that God knows. And you've got to understand, God has a bigger picture than even any earthly parent has. And he does want to bless you. And he, he, he will do that. And he has plans for your life. So here's what I want us to, to think about as we look in this next passage and as we've been considering even what it means to set our lives as, with, with Jesus as our target. If your goals have never been in conflict with God's goals, there's a very good chance you don't know what his goals for your life are. That's hard to hear. You're telling me that the goals I have, the good goals that I have, if they never rub up against anything that God's goals are for me, then I may not even be knowing what God's goals are. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're really pursuing the Lord and you're really following after the Lord, what you find is that there are certain goals that we want to make in this life that will push against the goals that God actually has for you. How do I know that? Well, we're going to see that today because we're going to talk a little bit more about suffering. Remember, that's one of the primary things that Peter was writing to these people about. He told them from the very beginning, look, you are, you're the chosen elected people of God who he loves and he wants to bless, but you're also going to endure suffering. How do we make those things fit? How does that work? Because many of the things that we're called to go directly against the flow of society around us. And when we go against the flow, we know we're going to experience rejection or, or, or at least resistance. That's the way it is. When you push against the flow, you're going to get some pushback. And nobody wants that. Nobody has that goal. I, this week, I hope to be rejected. Anybody got that goal for the week? Nobody does. Nobody wants that. Nobody sets themselves up for that. We love comfort. We love safety. We like security. We all want that. So the question's this. Could or would God ever call you to something other than that? Would God ever make you feel uncomfortable? Would God ever put you in a place that wasn't so secure and wasn't so easy? Well, here's what we learn. If you follow the Lord for any period of time, you very quickly realize that faith is often birthed in fire. The hard things in our lives. We talked about that in our life group on Friday night. One of the things that somebody brought up is they said, hey, the hardest parts of my life, that's where I actually found my greatest spiritual growth. It's rarely from the comfort and safety and security, that place. It's, it's oftentimes from the suffering and the difficulty. 
And that's often part of what we're called to. Because we have to remember this. Our temporary comfort is not God's ultimate plan. Jesus did not come into the world to try to give you a cushy life. It sounds good. I would sign up for it. That wasn't his purpose. That's not part of his ultimate plan. Jesus had a goal. All right, this is important to hear. It's your first fill in the blank if you're doing that. Jesus had a goal. It's to bring us to God. Jesus' goal is to bring us to God, no matter what else happened. And to what extent did Jesus suffer to complete that mission? Well, we're going to see that as we go through this passage in 1 Peter. It's going to elaborate on that a little bit. Let's start by reading the first verse that we see there in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now remember at the end of verse 12, oh, we'll get back to that. But right, verse 13 says this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now here he's talking about having a passion for goodness. Now think about this. Most of the time, not always, but most of the time, it's the lawbreakers in our world that are getting into trouble. It's the ones that are pushing back, the ones that are breaking the rules, the ones that are doing what they're not supposed to. You know what the best way to avoid a speeding ticket is? Don't speed. <laughs> it's hard for you to get a speeding ticket without speeding. It happens, but it's, it's hard. But, the, if, you're, if you're reading this, you see this, and you're like, now who is there to harm you if you're, if you're trying to do what's good, of having a passion for goodness? Well, we know as we live life that there are some who look for opportunities to exploit other people in this world. We see that. We experience that. In fact, the pessimist, when they read this verse, they're like, well, who is there to harm people? Lots of us. There's lots of people out there looking to harm somebody else, even if you're doing good. They'd say, hey, this is a dog-eat-dog kind of world, Pete. Like, what are you talking about? Well, remember now, in verse 12 from last week, Peter reminded us that God's eyes and God's blessing will be upon us when we pursue him. That's what that verse said, if you go back and look at it. No harm that can come to you in this world is going to outweigh the blessings of God, but you won't, and you won't always see all that in this life. That's the hard part. A lot of times the blessings that we get from God, the blessings that we want, the thing that we're, the baby elephant that we're asking for is God, bless my life. Pour out all your blessings on my life. I need your blessings. I need your mercy. I need your help. I need your provision. I need this in my life. And unfortunately, a lot of those blessings that God really does have for us, because that verse is true, his eyes and his blessings will be upon us. A lot of those blessings don't come in this life. We don't see those in this life. That's what the Bible tells us over and over. It says there's something coming that's greater. And we, we have to keep our eyes on that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, it, it says this. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He goes on in verse 31 of chapter 8. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what Peter's saying here when he says, well, who is there to really harm you anyway? What he says is, look, if you're walking with God and you're blessed by God, 
who, what's a person going to be able to do to you? Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? One more. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8 to 10 says, We're afflicted in every way. This is written by an apostle, okay? A, a godly person. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's important. That's important for us to have that mindset because if we can only see this side of eternity, then those verses really feel like hollow promises we're in the middle, when we're in the middle of suffering and struggle. When you're going through a hard time and you're afraid, you read a verse like that in Psalms and you're like, well, he's not afraid, but I'm afraid. What can man do to me? Well, they can fire me. They can take my house. They can kick me out of the neighborhood. They can beat me up. They can attack me. They can abuse me. There's a lot of things they can do to me. But that's only one we can only see on this side of eternity. And if we can get a glimpse of the beyond, that will provide hope in the middle of our struggle. And that's what Peter's trying to encourage people with. He's trying to say, look, these struggles are going to come, but you're still blessed. The struggle and the difficulty is going to come your way but there's a place for you in heaven. It's going to be hard, but God's eyes are on you. Keep your eyes up there because the Christian perspective is an eternal perspective. And that perspective is what enables us to endure. He goes on there then in verse 14 and he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. As I've already said here today, if we are pursuing God, his blessing will be upon us. It is upon us. And if God's blessing is upon us, Peter makes the logical statement. If God's blessing is upon us, we have nothing to fear. That's the truth. Now, it doesn't always feel that way. But if God's blessing is upon us, we have truly nothing to fear. But he says, you might still suffer even when you're trying to do what's right in God's eyes. He says, you may suffer even for righteousness' sake. For doing the right things, you still may suffer. But remember, whatever harm or suffering can fall on us in this life cannot overcome the blessings of the life to come. And we just commit ourselves into his hand as Jesus did. Now, I do want to say something. Because even in a, a, a small group like what we have here this morning, in a group this size, there's people among us that are suffering. They're struggling right now in their lives. Now, there's all sorts of types of struggle and difficulty. There's levels of all that. We know what it's like. But every, everybody has their different things. But for those of you who specifically are struggling right now, I just want to point this out to you that this, this truth is incredibly powerful this reminder to keep your eyes on him and that there is 
another life after this one and that there is blessing and hope to come. And if we can grab that truth by faith, we have a confidence and a hope in the Lord that helps us overcome our fear. That's very important. And this confidence, as we're going to see Peter goes on here, this confidence isn't just a tool for us to be strong and beat up our opponents with, but it's actually a tool to share our faith fully and fearlessly and join Jesus in the work that he has in this world. Look at verse 15. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is living in a way that is countercultural. It's not the way things work in our society. In fact, anytime anybody has a disagreement right now in our society, it, it, there's very little gentleness or respect. Right? Get on the news. Spend a, a few moments on social media. Pay attention to some of the dialogue that people are having right now. There's not a lot of gentleness or respect. And, but when we live in a way that goes against the culture, whatever culture it is, we're going to stir up questions. And people will want to know why you're living this way. That's what he says. He says, be ready to talk to those people who want to know, where do you get this hope? When things are bad, when things are hard, when you're in a struggling spot, and people see the way that you're saying, yeah, but I still have hope. They're going to be like, what do you mean you still have hope? Things are not good for you right now. I see what's happening in your life. How is it that you're so happy? Why do you have a smile on your face? <laughs> I know what you're going through. I know what you're dealing with. Where, why do you have this hope? Where does this come from? Do you not know what's going on around you right now? And Peter says, listen, yeah, you need to have that hope, but you also need to be able to express it. We need to learn how to share the why clearly. And defending our faith, people take this verse. This is a verse a lot of times that people build these incredible apologetics things, which is a defense of the faith of, they build these huge programs and sophisticated arguments and these whole systems of how you're to defend your faith. And it feels like this ominous, heavy thing sometimes, but it, it, there's, there's a place for those things. I'm not, I'm not knocking the idea of apologetics, but what I'm telling you is, is defending your faith doesn't have to be as big and sophisticated as we sometimes try to make it. You're just supposed to share what you know. And he says, how you do that is going to matter also. In, in 2 Corinthians, it tells us that we're ambassadors for Christ. And as we're ambassadors and we're going around and sharing our faith with other people, how we share our faith matters. We are called to share our faith with gentleness and respect. That's the two that he lists here today. Gentleness and respect. And, and we know that there's a lot of things that are labeled as Christian in this world that don't share any traits of Christian behavior or belief. How it got the label of Christian, I don't know. <laughs> but they call it Christian, but it, it, it doesn't line up that way. Well, think about it. What's the opposite of gentleness and respect? It's harshness or violence and disrespect. How many times have you heard something that's in the name of Christ that's violent and disrespectful. It doesn't fit. 
It's not supposed to be that way. Jesus didn't live that way. He didn't bring the gospel that way and neither should we. That's not what we're called to. And then he goes on in verse 16 and he says, and having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, that's when somebody's speaking badly about you, those who revile your good behavior, that's the same thing, reviling is again, it's spoken against um, in a negative or abusive way to somebody. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, like I already said to you earlier today, we all know that we're going to suffer in this life. We try to avoid it as much as possible, but it's going to happen. Usually, our bad behavior is what leads us to shame and suffering and other consequences. But that's suffering for evil. Now, Peter knew about that too. When you go back and you look at Peter's life, if, if, uh, if you were here at the beginning of this study, we went and looked at Peter's life, every, everything that we see in the gospel accounts of Peter's life. And one of the stories that we, we know from the Bible about Peter is on the night that they, they came and arrested Jesus and took him to be crucified. The first place that they took him was to the high priest's house, if you remember that. And the high priest had a big old house, a compound with like a, a courtyard in the in the, the beginning, in the, in the front area there. And what happened was as they arrested Jesus, they took him to the high priest's house there first in the middle of the night before they had their, their Jewish trial for him, before they could take him to Pilate, before the Roman governor. governor. And, and when they, uh, they brought him into that courtyard, Peter tells us, followed behind as they brought Jesus in. And he entered as far as the, the, the courtyard of the high priest's house. And if you remember that story, when Jesus was, was there with um, arrested and with all of the leaders, Peter was out in the courtyard warming himself up by a fire. It was a cold night. And as he's there, if you remember, he was confronted. He was, he was confronted by a servant girl who came up and said, wait a minute, I don't usually see you around this, this area here. Aren't you one of those guys that's with Jesus? In fact, why aren't you one of his followers, one of his disciples? And if you remember what happened there, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. He was scared. He was afraid. Somebody came and asked him about his faith. He's like, uh, I don't even know what you mean. What ends up happening three times out there in the courtyard. Remember that? And Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times in a row. And then what happened? That's when it all broke. I mean, Jesus had already told him, you're going to deny me. Peter was like, no way I'm going to deny you. I'm going to go with you to the death. I'll be strong. I'll fight it off. Walks in a little servant girl and immediately he starts denying Jesus. He blows it. It's bad behavior. And Peter goes out and he weeps. And he carried that with him until actually after Jesus resurrected. Peter knew what it was like to feel the suffering and the shame of making some bad choices. And that encourages us, doesn't it? Because we realize a lot of our suffering in this life comes from our own bad choices, not our good choices. We're not always gonna get this right. And we're not the only ones. We're not always gonna hit our spiritual targets. Yeah, you should have a spiritual target to, have, to live life like Jesus. You're not gonna always hit it. But we can and should be growing in it. I'll tell you the truth. I often fall short of the glory of God. But what do I do? 
I ask, I come back into the presence of God. I ask for that forgiveness. I, I rest in his grace. I repent, I get up and I move forward. And we can find growth in that. And we're to expose ourselves to what is right, good, and true, and then let the Spirit of God search our souls to strengthen us in this. Uh, I, I like this Psalm 139, 23, and 24, where the psalmist comes to God and says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we're called towards. Peter's calling us to a spiritual ideal. When, when he writes what he's writing here, he says, look, be willing to suffer even for doing good. Not just when you make the mistakes, not with, just when you do the bad things, be willing to suffer even with the good things because if God has a purpose for it, it's worth it. Okay? And that's then what he describes. He says, because Jesus did the same thing. Look at verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, and this is super important, listen to this, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What's he telling us? He says, look, we're called to go into the world with a clear conscience on our best behavior, sharing the gospel with others, even if it means suffering even if it means suffering. And that's what Jesus did. But the reason that he did it is that he might bring us to God. Jesus brought us to God. That's what he did. He and only he could do it. And the reason that Peter was challenging his readers and, and the reason we're challenged to it today to endure suffering, to be, to, as we've seen earlier in the book, to subject ourselves to authorities, to change your behavior, it all has a purpose to bring others to God. Just like Jesus brought us to God, that we could bring others to him, that he could bring more to God. That's how we enter into God's work in the world. Jesus didn't just tell us to do it. He came and did it and lived his life as an example for us. And Jesus believed that the suffering that he went through, even though he was righteous, even though he didn't do anything wrong, even though he didn't have sin, the suffering he went through was worth it because the eternal destination of a soul is worth temporary struggling and suffer, suffering. Now, we're, gonna, we're, we're hearing this kind of weird part of scripture. And uh, this is kind of the Bible scholar section <laughs> for you. And because we're coming across it, I do want to cover it for you. Um, especially if you've read this book before, if you've been reading ahead before we come together on Sundays, you might be like, whoa, what is this all about? Well, we're going to look at it here. Um, but I will warn you, theologians and Bible interpreters have always struggled to understand the meaning of this next section. It starts in verse 19. It's where things get interesting, all right? So let's go back and read verse 18, reading up to it. For Christ also, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, you might be like, what is this all about? 
um, how did this all function? And wait a minute, after he died, he's preaching to spirits in prison. Where, what is this spiritual prison? Who are these people? Where is, what, Noah, huh? Okay, let's talk about it. Now, the first thing that we have to wonder is, well, did Peter have some additional insight from Jesus about his death and resurrection and the space between his death and his resurrection in those three days in the tomb? And he quite possibly could have because if anybody spent time with the resurrected Jesus more than anybody else, it was probably Peter, all right? Peter appeared to his disciples multiple times after he resurrected before he ascended into heaven. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would have been asking Jesus all kinds of questions. Whoa, what was that like? What was the death part like? (laughs) You know, after dying, what was it like when you like woke up in that tomb? What did you see? What did you, what happened in those times? I mean, we'd have a lot of questions. So maybe he had a conversation with Jesus about that. That's a good possibility. But even, even still, we aren't clear on exactly what Peter's describing here. Now, it doesn't seem that he's referring to a physical prison on earth because why would he say speak, proclaiming to spirits in prison? Um, he would have just said people in prison, right? Um, but it sounds like it was some sort of a spiritual holding place for people who had already died. Um, so what could this be? Well, there's basically, in the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there's really kind of three spiritual realms that are referred to. Now, there's a lot of names that are kind of similar names for the same places, but I'm going to quickly go through those with you. First off, there's heaven. Uh, that's one we're probably all familiar with, heaven. Um, that's where God currently dwells with Jesus at his side. The Bible tells us that one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the separation that we experience now, because we can't see heaven, I, you know, we don't know where it's at and how that fits in the time-space continuum. But the Bible tells us that one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and that separation between the two is going to be changed. It's going to be different. They're going to be integrated with heaven and earth functioning in a way together. All right, that's one of the places. Heaven, that's a spiritual realm. Hell, we've heard of that one too. That's the second place. Now, the other part that confuses us a little bit is that sometimes hell has different names in the Bible. In some places in the New Testament, it's referred to as Gehenna, which is actually a a place outside of Jerusalem that was a a fire, um, a place where they burned trash. It was an ongoing perpetual fire, basically. Um, Gehenna, that's where that name comes from. Also, in Revelation, it's referred to as a lake of fire. Again, the whole burning, idea of burning. So these are different references to the same place, hell. Hell was a place, is a place for Satan and the fallen angels. It's referred to as a place of final death, a place of burning. All right? Then in the Bible, we also have a description of this third place. And this is the one that's the most confusing and unknown for most people. Um, In the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew Bible, so the Old Testament, which was primarily written in Hebrew, it's referred to as Sheol. All right? Sheol. It's also referred to um, in the New Testament as Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. And um, there's a reference also, we're going to look at the reference here in a minute, that describes another place called Hades, which that's a Greek word there. And that was, again, the abode of the dead to the Greeks. And, and because it was a Greek culture, they used that term interchangeably for Sheol. 
All right, so that's the third place. Now that place, Sheol, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is, is described as a kind of a waiting place. Now, I don't want to confuse you. This is different than the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, and we don't have time to talk about that today. That's different, all right? But there, there is this, this idea of this waiting place for people who have died. Now, before we go farther, I want to tell you this. When the Bible is vague, it's best that we are vague. All right? When the Bible is clear, it's best that we are clear. Uh, that's an important distinction, though, because sometimes, well, people don't like that. Um, and it makes things get a little bit um, confusing. If God intended the Bible to be a perfect instruction manual with detailed explanations of everything in the universe... If that's what he was trying to do, he failed. Well, we know God doesn't fail. And so instead, what we infer is that wasn't God's plan with the Bible. And so there's certain things that we would like to have a detailed description of that we don't have a detailed description of. And sometimes the right answer in scriptural passages like this, the right answer is, I don't know. The Bible is silent on those things. Wait till you get to heaven, and if you still have that question, ask him. He can tell you. He knows, but he has not revealed that to us. All right, and so this is one of those passages where we approach cautiously. Because even what I'm going to describe to you, I'm just going to give you my best guess on it, but there is no clear description of it in Scripture. So here's the question. If Jesus, after he died, but before he raised again, if he went and visited proclaiming the gospel to these souls in prison— who were those people? Where were they? And what was his message? That's the three questions we've got to ask. His message was the easy part. So we'll answer those backwards. His message was the easy part. What, what was, Jesus continued to proclaim everything before and after his death the same way. What did he say? He said that God himself has come to rescue humanity and bring us to God. That the Messiah had arrived. That atonement was complete. That salvation from death by grace through faith is now available. The simple gospel. So if he went to this place, well, where was this place? Where were they? It seems to me that most likely this, this is a reference to that Sheol, that third place that we talked about. This, this prison being a holding place, and it's a holding place that, that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 19 to 31. This is a long passage, but I feel like I need to read it to you. Um, if you've got a Bible and you want to flip over there, you'll probably want to. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. I'll give you a second to try to find that. I know this is kind of a long side note, but you want to know the Bible, right? Amen. All right, so this is a good thing to know. <laughs> All right, here's what it says in Luke 16. 19 to 31. This is Jesus speaking, and he's telling this story. And he says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Gross, I know, but he had a rough life. That's what Jesus is telling us. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This is that reference, Abraham's bosom, Sheol, Abraham's side, okay? The rich man also died and was buried 
And in Hades, here's the, that other term, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So there's some ability here from Abraham's side and Hades that can be seen, all right? And, at, and he called out in verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here, from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Jesus told this story to explain that the law and the prophets, the Bible, that's Moses and the, the prophets, the Bible is enough for people to know their need for a savior. That's what Jesus was saying. And also telling them that even resurrection from the dead won't convince people who are hard-hearted. He told them that before he proved that <laughs> because he did resurrect from the dead and it still doesn't melt hard hearts. All right? But if this place that Jesus is referring to is literal, then it's likely that what Peter is describing is that very place, Sheol, being composed of the righteous on one side, Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side, and then a chasm and the unrighteous in this place called Hades that he refers to here. Okay? So that's the message. That's the place. Well, who were these people? Well, what it seems is that it would be all those who had died before Jesus who did not obey. Because that's what it's referring to there. It says they, you know, they didn't obey. That is, they wouldn't accept their need for salvation nor the means of salvation. And he gives the example of Noah um, to, to describe that a little bit, right? And do you remember the story of Noah? Noah was the one who built the ark. You may be telling that to the kids down there right now, right? Noah built the ark, and what he did is for a hundred years, he built this ark and he was telling people there's going to be a giant flood. And if you don't enter into the ark, we're blown away, people, we're blown away. I think that pole will catch it there. You should be good. If you don't enter into the ark, the flood's going to come and it's going to wipe you out. You're not going to be saved. That's what, it, that's what was happening there. That's back in Genesis 6 to 9. And it says here in 1 Peter that only eight people were saved. It was the only, only the eight people that would receive salvation and go into the ark. Who was that? It was Noah. It was Noah's, Noah's wife, Noah's three sons, and their wives. That's it. That was the eight people that were saved. And they were carried safely through the waters from certain death to life, while others rejected the means of salvation. So what was the outcome then if that's what Jesus did? If Jesus came to these people who had died, if he came and gave this proclamation, you know, what, what was the outcome then? 
If Jesus went to the prison to preach, what happened? Here's where you're not going to like my answer. We have no idea. (laughs) We don't know. It doesn't tell us. It just says he went and proclaimed. Peter did not let us in on the rest of that. I don't know if there's a giant revival service down there in Abraham's bosom. I don't know what happened. I don't know what took place. We don't know. But the atoning work of Jesus does go both ways into history. From the first day in the past to the last day in the future. And some people might wonder if those who got a second chance, who found themselves on the wrong side of the chasm, we, we don't know. But why else would he go? Would Jesus go there just to rub it in? <laughs> Look at you. I said there was going to be a savior. Here I am. You're on the wrong side. I, that doesn't feel like Jesus to me. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't know. But here's what we do know. I say leave that part to the judge. He's the one who worries about people's eternal security. Leave that to him. What we do know is that in our time, it is clear that we only have the opportunity to accept or reject the salvation that Jesus offers in this lifetime. So you make that decision for your life and head in the path that God's calling you to. And and we're gonna finish here. Sorry, I'm going a little long this, this morning. We're finishing here in verse 21 and 22 because it feels almost like he shifts gears, but he doesn't. But he says here, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now we think of water as washing us clean, right? That's why we shower and bathe. And baptism here, what he says, baptism, you know, is, is uh, the way we practice baptism here is we immerse someone in water. They, they start out above the water, we dunk them down into the water, underwater, and then we lift them out of the water. Well, what, what's happening there? Baptism doesn't remove your sin. That's what he says. It's not taking dirt off the body. That's not what's going on. But it represents your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. That just as he was resurrected and given new life, that we can receive eternal life as well. Noah and his family passed through water and found life. Baptism represents moving from death to life. It says it this way in Romans 6, 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's what that is being symbolized as you go down into the water. You're being baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Baptism... Um, is an important statement of faith and obedience to God for a believer. And if you're a Christian, you should be baptized. It's a public declaration that you've been saved. It doesn't save you, but it's recognizing what God's done in you and declaring that to the world. And for those of you who haven't been baptized, it doesn't matter if you're old or young, if you've been walking with the Lord for decades or 10 minutes, 
Um, it's great that you would be baptized. This fall, we're going to do that very thing. We're going to have a baptism. I would love for us to have baptisms all the time. Um, with COVID, it's been kind of tricky. I know we've got a few people that have already asked about being baptized and want to be baptized soon. And um, it's kind of hard right now with what we've been dealing with. But I promise, as soon as we can, probably it'll probably be this fall, um, we're going to have a baptism. And I hope you all can come and bring your friends and we'll have a big celebration of baptism. So keep that in, in your mind. So how do we finish here today? How do we, how, what's our conclusion? Here's the conclusion. We have a purpose that we share with Jesus. We have a goal that we share with God. He suffered that he might bring us to God. We have the opportunity of joining in that work, bringing others to him, even if it includes suffering. So what is it? What are we saying then? Our purpose is to bring others to God. That's what we're called to. That's what we're invited into, to share that same thing, that same purpose that Jesus has. The Christian life is not the easiest life, but it's the only life that results in souls being brought to God for eternity. And may God help us to live lives that have that kind of internal, eternal impact. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we do thank you that you would love us so much that you would send your son to die on our behalf. And not only that, Lord, that, that you wouldn't just simply accept us, but you would invite us to become part of your family and to become your people. And part of that privilege is the privilege that we now share the same ministry that Jesus had on this earth. That same ministry that is bringing others to you. And God, I pray that you would enable South Point to be a church that shares their faith, even in the middle of our suffering. Lord, we don't want to suffer, and we ask that you keep as much suffering away from us as possible. But Lord, we also want to be willing to suffer if in that process, God, we can bring others to you. Because we know that in light of eternity, those are the things that really matter more than any of our, our present comfort. And so God, help us keep our eyes on you, keep our eyes on Jesus, remembering the example that he gave to us. And may we be those people that experience you moving in powerful ways among us. You tell us that you're looking for people, looking for people that are willing to do what you call us to do. We're weak. We don't have all the answers. We don't understand how to do all the things that we need to understand how to do. But Lord, you are powerful. And you have the ability to draw souls to yourself. You are the one that can awaken hearts. You are the one that can melt hard hearts. You are the one that can give a second life to people that feel like they have no life. You can bring light into the dark places. And we ask you to use us as a church to begin doing that. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any here today that are struggling with their suffering, Lord, that you would give them a fresh vision of yourself, a new insight into what blessings you have for them in the life to come. And by that, Lord, that it would strengthen them to endure whatever they need to endure on this earth. I know it breaks your heart to see your people suffer. We live in a fallen world. Sickness does not belong. Death does not belong. Sorrow and abuse does not belong. 
Violence does not belong, but it's here. Help us endure, Lord, but fill us with your joy and your peace, even in the middle of it and beyond it. And when we see you, that's what happens. And so God, I pray that we would be people that see you, people that hear you, people that know you, and that you would carry us through these these lives that you've given us. We thank you for your word today and pray that it goes deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.